Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. One of the people that worked for me very part-time, a moonlighter is what we call it, was a government psychiatrist, and uh, he worked for the State Department. But after a couple of months at my place, he couldn't help but notice I was seeing a lot of people from CIA, and he finally said, David, I have something to tell you. I don't work for the State Department. Oh, I work for CIA. Oh. Two months after that, David, I have something to tell you. I was playing squash with a lawyer friend of mine. He said, we would like you to consult on this fascinating case, an FBI special agent who turns out to be a KGB spy. Whoa, says Larry. I think I know somebody who can help you. That's how I got into it. And this was Earl Pitts. This was Earl Pitts. We really don't know the extent, do we, of the problem of insider spying. And you could make a case that the ones that we know about are the ones that didn't fully succeed at it. After all, they were caught. And that means, possibly, that the very worst ones are still out there, and we just don't know it. The government loves to take on high-tech solutions to name a problem. And I'm not saying that these are wrong. These are absolutely essential to be done. But there's a certain amount of uh, limited thinking because the decision to spy by anybody starts off in the mind of a person every single time. It's in the mind. Dr. David Charney is a practicing psychiatrist in Northern Virginia, just outside our nation's capital. In addition to his day job, David is an expert on the psychology of espionage. He has interviewed individuals convicted of spying, including former FBI agent Robert Hansen, perhaps the most damaging spy in our country's history. David has important insights on what leads individuals to betray their country, and he has many ideas, some controversial, on how to fix the problem. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. 
I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. I think our listeners are in for a fascinating and interesting discussion today. Thank you. David, I think the place to start is to ask, how did you, a psychiatrist in private practice, get interested in the psychology of espionage, and how did you develop your expertise in that area? Well, I think it starts in my service in the United States Air Force during the time of Vietnam, where I was stationed for my second year at Andrews Air Force Base and saw a number of people from a few intel agencies like NSA. And that put the bug in me of interest in the whole world of intelligence. When I got out, I thought, wouldn't it be neat to see if I could become a consultant to a nearby intelligence agency, and since I was moving to Northern Virginia, it would be CIA. I asked for an application form. It was uh, many inches thick. (laughs) It was intimidating and overwhelming, what with me starting a new practice and various other things. I said, I I just can't do this now. A number of years later, I made big decisions about expanding my practice, started to hire other staff, filled out uh, all the offices that needed filling in my building, and then I get one more call. It was from a young social worker, and I just could not refuse her an interview because she mentioned that she was related to a dear friend of mine. I met with her, and she was everything you would want a new employee to be, and I just figured I must make room at the table for her. Nine months later, I get a letter from CIA. You are now qualified to receive referrals from our agency. And I said to myself, what, what? I didn't know that I was being looked over. Didn't know I was in the pipeline. There's a linkage here between this young lady and... Turns out her mother worked at the CIA and had been the person to stand up their first really potent employee assistance program. And on her own initiative, put me into the pipeline, got me cleared, and then I started seeing people from CIA, from all the directorates, I would have to say for a period of a whole decade or so. Yeah, just to let people know, the Employee Assistance Program is a program at CIA for people that might have an alcohol problem or a drug problem or mental health issues, etc. Exactly. Well, that was what I call my immersion into the field of the intelligence world. Now, bear in mind that we were trained never to ask any questions about classified material. And all the the patients that I saw from there were also trained, don't reveal anything classified. But then, really, what you wind up learning about is the culture, the kinds of personalities, just the feel and the sense of things. And that was a very deep immersion for me, and I found it fascinating. Okay, so um, how do we get from there to the study of espionage and why okay. people spy? Well, one of the people that worked for me very part-time, a moonlighter is what we call it, was a government psychiatrist. And, and many of these 
kinds of uh, psychiatrists get a little rusty in their essential skills of doing treatment and so forth because they're doing a lot of administrative psychiatry, adjudicative work, and so forth. To keep their skills from going to full rust, they work at a place like mine. And uh, he worked for the State Department. But after a couple of months at my place, he couldn't help but notice I was seeing a lot of people from CIA. And he finally said, David, I have something to tell you. Oh, what's that? I don't work for the State Department. (laughs) Oh, I work for CIA. Oh, well, that enlarged our ability to chat with each other about stuff. Two months after that, David, I have something to tell you. Oh, now what is that, Larry? I was playing squash with a lawyer friend of mine this weekend. He said, we would like you to consult on this fascinating case that came into our practice. An FBI special agent who turns out to be a KGB spy. Whoa, says Larry, that is indeed very interesting, but hey, I work for the feds. That's a conflict. I think I know somebody who can help you. And that was me. That's how I got into it. And this was Earl Pitts. This was Earl Pitts. Um, arrested in 1996 yes. for spying for the Soviet Union and serving, I think, a 27-year sentence. Not quite that long, but close enough. And actually, he's due to be released in roughly a year from now. And then you you met with another as well. Well, the next one that I met with was uh, really the big one, the big fish, and that was Robert Hansen. And that was a few years after that. People uh, knew that I had some expertise in this because I had already learned a lot from my first case and I did a lot of thinking about it and started to develop my psychology of the insider spy. And this is Robert Hansen, also a former FBI special agent, um, arrested in 2001. Yes. I have to say that how these things happen in Washington, who can tell? They are accidents and surprises. It's a small world. It happens that I was uh, shopping late one night at Sutton Place Gourmet, and somebody shouts my name. It was already past eight. I was not really interested in any socializing. I was tapped out from the day. But she was all excited to see me. Why? Her son, Peter, had seen me on TV. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it's true. Why? Because... In the media world, when the Hansen case popped up, they tapped on experts that just make comments on things. And I was one of those. Well, uh, this woman says, uh, that's so exciting. Are you in on this case? And I tell her, well, uh, Donnie, actually, I wrote a letter to the defense attorney And um, I haven't heard back yet. There's a chance it will happen, but who knows? Well, she says, what's his name? It was Plato Kacharis, who's a very famous attorney in town. And she starts jumping up and down and says, Plato, Plato, Plato. I say, Donnie, what's the matter? She says, he's my next-door neighbor. Mm. I'll write him a note. Mm. I'll put it in his mail slot tonight. Mm. And she does. Two days later, I'm having lunch with Plato. And that kind of leads to me getting involved with the Robert Hansen case. Right. And then there was a third case as well, Brian Regan. That's right. Um, Air Force NRO. Right. And uh, I I could tell another little anecdote, but let's just say that through accidents of 
who knows why they ha- happen in Washington is a very small town. I got involved with that case as well. So you spent a lot of time with these gentlemen, and did they did they open up to you? Did they? How did that happen? You know, one would think they might be defensive. All it- true. Uh, I had these very thoughts when I was meeting with Nina Ginsburg, the attorney for uh, Earl Pitts, when we were still trying to size each other up and figure out are we going to do this or not. And I was hearing stuff that made me concerned as a psychiatrist about uh, signs of depression, maybe even suicidal concerns. And how do you handle that if you're just consulting to somebody inside prison where he was already? And I was thinking, well, what would I do with somebody in my normal psychiatric practice where I'm worried about that? The answer would be, You have to give a person a sense of future, a sense of hope, of some way to justify existence going forward that makes life worth living. And what do you do with somebody who's facing years and years of prison? Or in Hanson's case, life. Yes. Yeah. Well, the answer, just as a thought that wasn't proven, was proposing the idea that there would be some way for such a person to partially atone for the bad things that they did by opening themselves up to explain in more detail the motivations and psychology that led to them crossing the line. Mm. Because I knew already that the knowledge about that was actually rather thin in Mm. the intelligence community. So this would be a golden opportunity. And all I could do is take a deep breath and say, "Would, would that make sense to you after I met with them maybe once or twice? In the case of Earl Pitts, the first uh, spy that I met with, he, and this is a quote, he said, I'll be your guinea pig. Mm. And he was very open and uh, forthcoming about everything that was in his mind. So, David, through your interviews and through your study, you've developed a theory on what leads people to spy. And I want to walk through that in some detail with you. But before we do that... I want to ask you if your work is applicable only to insiders in government who spy, or does it also apply more broadly to insiders in government like Edward Snowden, right, who leak massive amounts of information, or even insiders in corporate America, right, who for some reason might want to do damage to their company? Is this, is, is this narrow or is it broader? It's broader. It, it acts actually developed in my mind in a backwards way because my first interest was to figure out the psychology of an insider spy. But the more I delved into it and thought about it, it basically is a general psychology of men. What are we talking about? Male pride and ego and how we measure it within ourselves. Inside us, all men, is a need and a wish to be successful in the major spheres of life that would be in our careers. So this is now the core psychology, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is the core psychology of what you found. Yeah. I found out about this by working with uh, these spies, but the more I thought about it and thinking back over my whole practice career, this is not limited to spies. It's not limited to people in government. It's not limited to people in in the business world. It's a general psychology that you will see worldwide 
I just happen to have sharpened the thinking about it, at least in my mind, by starting off with spies. Gotcha. Okay. So before we get to that general psychology and how that leads to spying, let me ask another general question. So we really don't know the extent, do we, of the problem of insider spying. And we know the ones we catch, but we have no clue how many are out there that we didn't catch. Is that right? I totally agree with that. I've made that point in my papers. It's um, the baseline prevalence of this problem is simply not known. And you could make a case that the ones that we know about are the ones that didn't fully succeed at it. After all, they were caught. And that means possibly that the very worst ones are still out there and we just don't know it. Right, right. Okay, so back to the core psychology. Why does that core psychology or how does that core psychology you talk about lead to somebody to spy? Well, what's, what's, I framed the, the, the narrative core, there. The core psychology that I came up with was the following an intolerable sense of personal failure as privately defined by that person. Now, what do I mean by that last part? It means that you can look at a man's life and say to yourself, okay, he didn't do that well. He had this problem and that problem and the other, this deficiency and that inability. But look, he also did some other things that were really okay, and that was all right. Maybe not an A player, but yeah, a strong C, a B minus. Doesn't matter what you think is the point. What matters is what the man thinks about his own life and his own performance and success. That's very key. Uh, and we're talking about an internal negotiation that people go through on this point. And now the next issue that's pertinent is the context of where a person is operating their life as to how they handle all that. So by no means am I saying this is the formula for spying. No, this is a formula for desperate actions and management strategies that people will do. Uh, for example... Because they feel that way. Yes. If you feel like you're a loser, that you're a failure, how do you handle it? Well, some people will drink too much. Some people will have affairs. Some people will quit their job. Some people will move. Name a thing that people will do. Now, the worst thing that we know about is that somebody, if they happen to be working for the proverbial post office, is that they go postal. So we're talking about the context where people are embedded in their life as to what sort of solutions they come up with to deal with this awful internal feeling. Hmm. And sometimes it's a violent one, but sometimes it's personally self-destructive. It could be suicide. It could be depression. For the few that become spies, clearly they are embedded in the intelligence community and that's where they can play out their internal trouble in the workplace setting because it offers them a a chance to do it that way. And how does spying fill the void, right, or solve their problem? Well, there are many ways that spying can be their personal answer. For example... Does anybody work in any bureaucracy where they can't come up with a thousand complaints, frictions, annoyances, uh, not being treated right? There's an endless supply of that feeling no matter where anybody works. But if you have a need to 
project outward and externalize your internal self-dissatisfaction, being at work and, and now locating these troubles from the outside is easier on you because it's no, it's not you that's the failure. It's these other people that have failed me, not treated me right, and I will get back at them and fix this. So you mentioned before, and I want to come back to this, that most spies are male. Yes. In fact, I think I saw in your paper that 95% of them Roughly 95, maybe a few percent less, but not a whole lot less. Why is that? Again, I think we're talking about males are built to take action when they are under distress. Women uh, are a little different. They will talk about things. They will internalize. They find it easier to talk about things to other women. But men keep it bottled up, so when it starts to, uh, the pressure builds up inside, they are more, more activated to do something about it. Are men more likely to feel that they've failed in their life than women, or not? That's a good question, and I'm not, as much as I know about this from my practice, it's a hard thing to measure. What are the metrics of this? I don't even know. Let's just say that men, we, all us men, I include me, certainly, are are very sensitive to how we're doing. How are we doing in life? And so uh, we have a much more sensitive ego about these things than most people realize. Women are also measuring themselves, but they don't have quite the same uh, flavor of it that men have. And therefore, they are somewhat less likely to be very activist about trying to solve it. Mm. So, David, you've also developed what you call the 10 life stages of an insider spy. And we don't have time to walk through every one of them in detail. But can you give us a sense for why the existence of stages is important and then maybe describe some of the most important stages for us? I'd like to make a a comparison to the difference between a still photograph and a movie. You look at a still photograph of something very interesting, and you can read a lot out of just a single still photograph. But, gee, don't leap to too many conclusions about it because it's just one tiny moment of of life that you're looking at. Much more useful, I think, is to regard everybody's life as an unfolding movie where stuff happens along the way, good things, bad things. And so the the storyline builds up to create certain pressures and motivations that drive subsequent action. Screenwriters know how to play this very nicely. In the case of stages, I came up with that idea because it shows an evolution of things over time that we can better understand how come something develops instead of looking at the one still photo of, oh, somebody got caught spying and we just leap to all kinds of conclusions about why that was. No, think of it as as a script that has unfolded and climaxed with that, but Understand that it's much more subtle and nuanced than than a simple photograph. So what are some of the key stages? Well, the first stage I make a point about are the sensitizing stages, when bad stuff happens to people growing up. But 
I may also make a point that as bad as those things are, if that was the reason that people chose to spy, we would be having to let go 85% of everybody who works for the police department, the uh, army, the intelligence community, all kinds of outfits that have people that have also gone through rough stuff growing up, but they didn't take the pathway of doing harm to our country. No, quite the opposite. They basically said, I will not let this kind of bad thing happen to anybody else. In fact, I will protect people from that. Mm. I'm going to be a guardian. I'm going to be a protector. And that's why people are drawn into these professions. So it's not always a bad thing to be sensitized. It can be something that's motivated. The next stage has to do with when bad things happen to any person when it piles up way beyond their capacity to cope. We're talking about a whole series of terrible things that we all have a capacity to absorb some onslaughts of bad luck and and bad things being done to us. But when it piles too high, I like to call this a psychological perfect storm where everything happens over too short a period of time and is bad. Mm. That is what deranges people. That's what causes people to lose their sense of situational capability. And they start to, they're not operating with their full load of intelligence and rational judgment. That's what sets people up to, to start to consider reaching in a very extreme way for something to, to save them. Some dramatic, big, brilliant idea, an epiphany, that at one stroke will fix all of these mm. problems. And for that small number of people in the intelligence community that are in that setting, it can be, oh, I know what will, I'll show them. They think I'm stupid, I'm much smarter than they are, and gee, I'm a little tight with money, I'll get money, and so on and so on, that all of a sudden everything makes sense to take that move of crossing the line. And of course the intelligence officers who are recruiting these people are attuned to all of that. Ah, they're trained into it. They are artists of being able to identify and target prospects that way. I think of them as the offensive team inside the intelligence community. Uh, Thinking in terms of football analogies, you have an offensive team and a defensive team. The offensive team is trained into a great... Uh, appreciation of these considerations and how to make use of them. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David Charney. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, so somebody has made this leap into spying, then what happens next? Well, once they have stepped over the line, I want to make a comment that a lot is said about 
the art of recruiting somebody. But in my opinion, a lot of the times, these are self-recruitments. People have evolved in the ways that I've described, and they have an internal readiness because, think about this, there are uh, stories about certain people on, on our side working for the intelligence community that unfortunately decide to cross the line, and they can't get picked up by the KGB because the KGB isn't stupid. They're worried about a dangle, somebody who's pretending to be you know, ready to be recruited. You have to go through a lot of vetting before you're picked up. There are stories about some of our people that throw over the wall documents that, or, or through the windshield of, of, of uh, foreign agents because it's hard work to get picked up. Right, right. But anyhow, once somebody is picked up, temporarily they are euphoric because, oh, my God, I pulled it off. I did it. I really did it. Everything is getting solved now. And, whoa, this guy, I, I had doubts about myself, but he thinks I'm brilliant. He's so complimentary about me. He's the first guy to truly appreciate how great I am. And plus, now it's fun because I'm learning all these new tradecraft things and drop sites and this and that. So it's like a euphoric honeymoon stage. And then what happens? But then, like everything in life, every tr crisis by definition peters out. And it's the morning after. The morning after where... You wake up and you say to yourself, oh, my God, what was I thinking? And that's this retrospective statement of the rationality filtering back into your mind. And you're saying to yourself, gee, I don't know if I did the right thing after all. Now, the most important thing is he comes to appreciate that he's completely stuck and trapped. Why is that? Well, what is he going to do? go to his KGB handler and say, gee, I made a terrible mistake. Could we, like, pretend that this never happened? It's a little bit like going to a mafia don that give you a favor, and you come back and say, well, gee, can we, can we pretend this didn't happen? And that will not occur. Plus, it's dangerous. So, all right, that's, that direction is, is shut down for you. What about doing the right thing? Well, what does that mean? Turning yourself into security and saying, oh, I made a terrible mistake. I didn't do very much, but I did cross the line a bit, and I really would like to uh, tell you all about it. And, and, uh, and stop. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I, I call that sharks in a shark tank. Well, what does that mean? Sharks can swim with each other fine, but if one of them gets nicked and starts to bleed, they'll all turn him on him like prey and they'll cut them up alive. And does that happen to actual people in the intelligence community if they cross just a little bit and they turn themselves in? Sadly, yes. How do I know it? Because I've met those people. And they are the saddest people because they've messed up their careers. They are punished very severely for even the littlest bit of, of crossing over. And that gets out into what's called the corridor, not the official information that's out there, but what people chat about. They tell little stories to each other. And so you learn, don't do that. So now you can't quit. You can't turn yourself in. What do you do? 
you figure, oh, well, I made my bed. I'll just have to sleep in it. So that is the situation of why people just stick with it because they don't have alternatives. And and, and did all three of the folks that you spent time studying, Earl Pitts, Robert Hansen, and Brian Regan, go through all of these stages? No. Or no. Is, 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 is the stages a generalization? Generalization. Uh, I did that for more than one reason. One being to protect a certain amount of confidentiality about each of the stories. And secondly, I was aware of the Kubler-Ross stages of people anticipating dying from, let's say, cancer or whatever. So it was never stated that people marched lockstep through each of these stages exactly as they were portrayed. These were generalizations that were pretty on target, and people would go through one stage a little bit more than another person or a little bit out of sequence or whatever, but just to give a, a sense of organization to how things proceed, that's how I came up with the stages. Okay, David, so let's let's switch gears again, and I want to ask you, how does the government try to deal with the problem of insider spies today? How do they try to do that? And in your view, what's what's wrong with that approach? And then we'll get to your ideas on what we should be doing. The government loves to take on, our, the U.S. government, high-tech solutions to name a problem. It's in our DNA. We're Americans. We're so clever with that stuff. And there are all kinds of concepts of using surveillance, watching keystrokes on machines, and having all kinds of uh, fobs and and skiffs and and name a thousand high-tech strategies. And I'm not saying that these are wrong. These are absolutely essential to be done. But there's a certain amount of uh, limited thinking because the decision to spy by anybody starts off in the mind of a person every single time. It's in the mind. And that sensitivity to the psychology that I've described a little bit of in that stage is the way that it evolves is not a strong suit in terms of uh, how it's approached in the intelligence community. Now, one of the problems is that some of the ways to divert the, the worst things from happening would be if there were resources that were available that were safe for people to reach for. That's not so much happening anymore. I think when the person that I told you about, uh, June, who stood up the EAP at the CIA, she was very aware of the importance of keeping um, a stiff arm, to some degree, of her counseling resources from security and counterintelligence. She knew how to firewall it a bit. That got lost over time as things happen in the bureaucracy. And again, I'm going to talk about the corridor. If the corridor reputation is you go there and the next thing you know is you get a a call from your friendly security officer, if you got a small problem, you might say, all right, uh, I didn't do anything that bad, that will be okay. A medium-level problem where maybe your boss tells you, hey, I really need you to go to EAP. All right, that could work. There's some pressure involved. It could be better, but you'll do it. But what I call Class C problems, by that I mean really bad problems where somebody 
crossed over more than just a little bit, and they really are in a terrible, problematic situation in their life, they do not dare go right. to EAP. Right. It's a death sentence. Right. That. Right. So what should we do? And and here you have developed some ideas for both prevention and for stopping spying once it starts. And that second one is quite controversial. I'll tell people right up front and then we'll talk about that. But can you walk us through both your ideas on prevention and, and your idea on stopping the spying once it starts? Yes, and even though it's backwards, but, but that's the way it evolved my thinking, was what to do with the problem of somebody who's crossed the line, as I mentioned before, is stuck and trapped. And that's to the detriment of our national security because they continue to be productive in terms of giving our secrets to our adversaries. Well, I came up with the idea of an off-ramp exit solution for somebody who's stuck and trapped. What that would mean is that there would have to be a deal that would be offered to somebody that would make sense to them, that represents safely getting out of this bad thing that they're doing. It would be a special small government operation that would be designed to welcome back somebody who's crossed the line, but not to give them a free ride at all. The one thing that just makes, to take advantage of that moment in the in the stages where they are questioning yes. what they've done. Right. Right. And just as a quickie sidebar, one of my stages is called dormancy. Well, what is that? Every one of the, the spies that I saw quit spying for sometimes a long time. And the theory that these are evil, horrible people that just can't wait to harm us all the time is brought into question by the fact that, well, why did they stop them? Answer, because they secretly are dying to stop. It's a wishful desire to end this horrific state that they are living in. And always worrying about the other shoe dropping a knock on the door. So my theory about the solution is to say, hey, let's recognize that, that there's a true wish to get out of it, and create a, a safe exit mechanism that serves everybody's purpose. And, of course, the controversial thing about my off-ramp exit for after somebody has crossed the line, as I say, you got to take one thing off the table, jail. Why? Because I've seen what happens when that's still left on the table, and most spies will say, if that's what i got to do, and it's uncertain what will happen to me, I'll take my chances. But all other punishments would have to be in place, such as you lose your job in the IC. You lose your clearance. You pay back the monies that you got that were badly acquired. You have lifetime financial uh, scrutiny so that you can't tuck things away. You may even have to acquire a new identity because you might be worried about the KGB coming after you like the Witness Protection Program, a whole lot of bad things, except you don't go to jail. Yeah. So we put people in jail for three reasons, maybe. Deterrence, protecting society from people's further crimes, and punishment, right? So how do you think of those three things in the context of, of quote, letting somebody off the hook from jail time? 
I had to think through what serves the highest purpose that I'm concerned about, that is to say, national security. Sure, I would love to throw them in jail forever, but at the price tag of, say, risking the loss of a United States aircraft carrier with 5,000 people because certain codes are, are given away, you know, billions of dollars worth of assets and 5,000 lives is more important than keeping one spy in jail 10 extra years. That's how I looked at it. Yeah. So you quoted, um, in one of your papers, you quoted Sun Tzu, a great Chinese philosopher, who said, always give your enemy an exit. Yes. And you also told a fascinating story about the, the, the FAA and alcoholic pilots who have something similar to this. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes. I was taught this by the chief physician of uh, United Airlines, a, a friend of mine. I ne- didn't know about this program, but apparently... It used to be that if an, uh, a pilot was an alcoholic and the cabin crew knew it, they would not dare pull the whistle on him. Why? Because they were afraid that that would result in the loss of the pilot's job and all kinds of recriminations and all kinds of bad commentary and maybe they're not fully right. It was just too risky for them on a personal level. But that was a problem because it meant alcoholic pilots were flying around all over. They set up a new program. You can turn in the pilot, but be assured that that would not immediately lead to that pilot being fired. Rather, the pilot would be required to go through a pretty stringent alcoholism program with a lot of good follow-up and rehabilitated and brought back to flying if he passed through all of that. And uh, as my friend Gary, the uh, chief physician of United Airlines, said, the way to look at it is this. When somebody says, you mean I might be flying in a plane with, with a recovering alcoholic? And the answer would be, oh, would you like to prefer flying with a, an active alcoholic? Take your pick. So what's the reaction been inside government to your ideas? And are you talking to the government about your work? I've done a lot of speaking inside the government, outside the government. And here's what I've learned. People who are still inside the government are not so quick to express support from this idea because they have to adhere to the common wisdom that's inside the building right now. Once they get out of the government, it's surprising how many people have expressed support to me because they don't fear that they're going to be saying something that's simply unacceptable to the culture. Interesting. So um, let me just ask you one question about Robert Hansen and how you found him. You spent, I think, a year with him. He's one of, He's possibly the the spy that did more damage than than any other spy in American history. What was he like? Did he want to talk? Did he show remorse? What kind of person was he? He was a very complicated person. Let's use one term that is a very common thing as to how people's psychology is structured. He was a very compartmentalized person. What does that mean? He could be one sort of a person in one block of time 
And then in another block of time, very different. And then in the third block of time, still different again. Now, is that weird? No. I do it all day in my practice. During the time that I'm with the first patient of my day, I'm in that compartment, all there. When that session is over, I've got to close that little door and open up a new compartment for my next patient. So I do it to survive being a practicing psychiatrist. And we all do that in some way. But some people do it a whole lot more than others. Robert Hansen, I believe, did it more than anybody I've ever met. Mm. And I got to know him quite well because all three spies in jail, I met with them for two hours, roughly two hours a week for an entire year. So it's not like a superficial experience of living with them in that setting. So Robert Hansen was very bright, very smart, but I also figured out that he was not quite as smart and bright as he tried to project. For example, he would talk about all kinds of arcane scientific subjects, and he knew that most of the time people would not know what he was talking about. But it happens that I love various other subjects, such as physics, and he would start talking about arcane physics subjects. But he got some things wrong. Now, I didn't say that to him. But I said to myself, oh, he can lather it up in this way that most people would be intimidated and very uh, impressed by. But he doesn't always get it right. So that was another side of him. He, he just worked very hard at being impressive to people. But he overshot his full capacity by a certain amount. You asked about remorse. Yeah. Well, that was there too. Again, you know, one of the compartments of his mind was he admitted in, a, in an ashamed way of how bad he felt about some of the stuff that he did. Then in another compartment, he projected as an extremely devout Catholic, devoted to Opus Dei he actually ordered me to read up on material from Opus Dei and to actually meet with the chief of Opus Dei here in Washington, D.C., which I did, trying to absorb the different sides of him. So there we have a devout Catholic who did all kinds of horrible things, and yet at the same time he was brilliant in many ways, but not so brilliant in other ways. There was no way to get... um, to stitch together everything in a way that made complete sense because he was so compartmentalized. David, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us. I want to let people know that they can find your work at www.noirusa.org. David, thanks again. Thank you for inviting me. Welcome. That was David Charney. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 